Thanks, Luke. Daniel, appreciate you guys. Good morning, everybody. Uh, good to see your faces, those of you who are here, and uh, hello to all of you who are online, and um, welcome to those of you who are back on Zoom. We brought Zoom back this week. So um, by popular demand, um, everybody said at our meet members meeting on Sunday night that they wanted the chance to see each other and interact. So with that option is online. If you're we're speaking from home and want to see some other people or interact, you can go to Zoom, go to our website. There's a link there. Uh, if you're new or if you're visiting with us um, or we just haven't met, my name is Stephen and I'm one of the pastors here. And as Norton said, today we are wrapping up this series that we've been in for the last four weeks. And the series has been all about the concept of culture. Uh, the series is called Resist. And in this series, what we've been talking about is that uh, culture is a force that that influences all of us um, in ways that sometimes that we see and understand and, and other ways that we don't necessarily see or understand. And this, this uh, definition is the one that we've been using for culture throughout the series. It comes from a book called Culture Making by a guy named Andy Crouch. And it's this, that culture is what we make of the world in both senses. So there's a little bit of a play on words there that culture are the th is the things that we make. It's the tangible products that we make. It's music. It's art. It's film. It's all of those tangible things that we see that, that is an expression of who we are. But there's uh, another part of culture that's, that's maybe even bigger, which is the unseen part of culture. It's all of the values. It's the, the unstated and unquestioned assumptions that a group of people have. Uh, it's our biases. It's the tendencies that we have to think one particular way. And, and anywhere you find a group of people, you will find culture. It's what we do. It's what we do as human beings. As social creatures, we create these kinds of norms and these ways of being together. So all of us are a, lot, are a part of a lot of different cultures. We're part of American culture just by nature of living in this country. We're a, a part of Colorado culture, which is slightly different than American culture. Uh, your family has a culture. Your workplace has a culture. And for sure, this church, the church, has a culture as well. And in, in over the last month, I've tried to, to stress and to highlight that as people who are here at church, who value learning what it means to have a relationship with God, to follow the way of Jesus, that, that our faith is, a, is about a way of being in the world. It's a way of living. It's a, it's, a lived, it's a way of seeing the world and a way of living in the world. And that the, some of the cultures that we're a part of help encourage us in that direction, but others actually push us in the opposite direction. And when we find those things, those are the things that we need to push against and to resist um, in order to stay true to our values as followers of Jesus. And this week, I want, as we wrap up the series, I want to talk about another dimension of culture that has tremendous influence on us. And I think at this moment in our history is maybe more important um, than any of the other dimensions of culture. It's the mental-emotional dimension of culture. Um, now, while mental and emotional states are internal realities that you have feelings and you have thoughts um, the way that those get expressed into the world is for sure impacted by your culture. Uh, while I was researching for this message, I actually found that there is a focused discipline, I didn't know this, a focused discipline within psychology uh, that studies the link between culture and our internal and mental and emotional states. Um, I found this in an article in, in Psychology Today that I thought, I thought was really interesting by a professor uh, from Belgium. She says this. She says, emotions are cultural phenomena because we learn to have them in a cultural way. We don't really know discrete emotions when we are born. We only distinguish between pleasant and unpleasant. 
In interacting with others, we learn to categorize and experience emotions in certain ways. Universally, emotions emerge from interactions with others, and those interactions will always happen within the framework of a culture. But from there on, things are different between cultures. Almost everything about emotions is cultural, what we call them, how we think about them, and how we regulate them. So what that means is that we all have internal emotional experiences, but the way that we express those is affected by the culture that we're a part of. And if you're someone, if you've ever traveled outside of the United States, or especially if you've lived in, in another culture, if you've lived for a significant period of time in a culture that wasn't the culture that you were born or grew up in, you have experienced how disorienting it can be to live somewhere where people's expression of culture is different than what you experienced in your home culture. Uh, so way back in the, the first time I ever lived overseas was way back in two, the year 2000, so about 20 years ago. I, I spent a year in two countries that were both part of the former Soviet Union. And what I learned during that year was that all of the stereotypes about Russians being kind of cold and distant and non-emotional publicly was, was very true. And it was incredibly disorienting for this, this kid who was from the southern United States where it's all about friendliness and hospitality and at least on the surface, right? Like we're, we're very nice and hospitable. We've got that southern hospitality thing going on. So when I would see someone on the street and I would make eye contact and I would smile and nod at them and they didn't say anything or respond or even acknowledge that I was a human being on the presence, it just felt like like it was focused on me. Like everybody knew I was an American and everybody hated me. Like that, that, that's what it felt like. It was incredibly disorienting. But of course, over time, what I began to understand was that they didn't hate me and, and they had emotions. They experienced the same kinds of emotions that I did. And as I got to know them, they were warm and expressive and wonderful people. But publicly, it was just a very different experience. And so um, I've been thinking about this recently, this link between emotion and culture because of the historic moment that we're in right now. And, and I think right now that there is a shared experience of emotion that's taking place in American culture that's maybe unlike anything in my lifetime. Um, going all the way back to the year 2017, the American Psychiatric Association, they did a poll of Americans that asked people various questions about their mental and emotional state. At that point in 2017, two-thirds of them responded that they were somewhat or very anxious about health and safety for themselves and for their family. And in 2017, more than a third of them said they were more anxious then than they were a year before. And the APA did this study again in 2018, and they did it again in 2019. And what they found was similar levels of anxiety. And, and each year, the, the perception that people gave of how nervous they were or anxious they were relative to the year before grew to the point where in 2019, 40% of people who responded that they were more anxious in 2019 than they were in 2018. So that led scientists, that led psychologists to declare coming into 2020 that we were in the middle of an anxiety epidemic, <laughs> which I laugh because it's, it's almost funny, right? Like if that's where we were at the beginning of the year, where are we now? Like what's beyond epidemic? Like anxiety dumpster fire, like anxiety catastrophe. Like I don't know what's worse than epidemic, but clearly that's where we are. I mean, 
with everything that has happened in this year, with a worldwide pandemic, with the associated economic disruptions, with the racial injustice tensions that have erupted in our country, uh, with an election now in full steam headed towards November, our anxiety just seems to keep growing. But I don't need to tell you that, do I? I mean, you don't need a poll to know that everybody is more anxious than they were a year ago. We feel it, right? We feel it rise in ourselves when we watch the news, when we hear about another outbreak of the virus some other place, some other state, when we hear about a school that had an outbreak or a school that, that tried to open but are shutting down as we're sending our kids back to school this fall. We feel it rise in us. We see it in the angry interactions between people over wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, people yelling and fighting in grocery stores. We see it in angry interactions with one another over political positions on social media. In the age of COVID, anxiety even follows us into the most mundane and everyday of tasks. It's, it's a little more stressful to do everything now, isn't it? Like just going to the grocery store. I mean, just going to Home Depot. Coming to church is a little more stressful than it used to be. To varying degrees, we are all experiencing more anxiety and more stress than we did before. As a friend of mine said, the stink of COVID is on everywhere, on everything. It's everywhere. You can't get away from it. It's just infected, no pun intended, and impacted everything, our emotional experience of everything that we took for granted before. So the question is, what do we do about that? I mean, I'm Mr. Good News today, right? Like it's an anxiety. We're in an anxious mess as a country. And, and, and comparatively, we're, we seem to be more anxious than even other industrialized countries. All these surveys nationwide, America seems to come out on top. So either we're just more expressive about our anxiety or, or we are genuinely more anxious than even other countries in the world. So how do we respond to that? How do we, how do we react to that? What do we do? And, and maybe most importantly for us here today at church... What does our faith have to tell us about the experience of anxiety? Well, today I want to take a look at a couple of verses um, out of the scripture that I think give us a way of thinking about anxiety. And then I'm going to talk about um, some tools that I think we can use based on those verses um, that help navigate us through it. But before I do that, I do need to give, um, I do need to give some disclaimers because when you start talking about mental health, um, and mental emotional states, we need to be really clear about what we're talking about because there's a lot of different types of anxiety and, and, and some of them I'm, I'm not talking about today. So, so first of all, I would say we're not talking about anxiety disorders today. So things like PTSD, post-traumatic stress or accumulated stress disorder, um, real trauma that caused stress that is accumulated in, in people's bodies, um, that requires the help of a, of a professional to help you navigate through. I'm not going to be able to give you tips or tricks to be able to navigate through that. Um, we at New Denver really believe in mental health and, and pursuing that, and that we believe that God uses that to, to give people amazing freedom. So if you struggle with, um, with extreme forms of, of anxiety, general anxiety disorder, um, which, is, which is defined as having real concerns that get uncontrollably exaggerated to a level that it's debilitating, if you're having panic attacks, we would love to talk to you about finding um, some help. So just to be clear, that's not what we're talking about today. The second is acute anxiety. So acute anxiety is, is just wired into us. It's, it's neurobiologically how we were made to function. Um, so this is a, where there's a real threat, there's real danger. 
Um, it's short term, and then you're able to calm yourself afterwards. So this is a normal part of how God wired us. If you narrowly avoid an accident and you feel your heart racing, like that's acute anxiety. So that's not what we're talking about today. That's normal and natural. If your child runs out into the street, that's not the time to practice the, the techniques or the, the principles I'm going to talk about today. You, you should go chase after your child, okay? What I am talking about is chronic anxiety. <clears throat> so chronic anxiety is long-term. It's, it's, it's where there is a perceived threat. Not a real threat, but a perceived threat. And it's something that you always carry with you. So if you're a parent in that scenario... Your child is just playing in the front yard, but you can't stop thinking about what might happen to them. What if they run out in the street? What if a white panel van pulls up and snatches them and runs away with them? Like, you've never seen a white panel van in your neighborhood, but you can't stop thinking about this this perceived threat. That's chronic anxiety, and that's what I want to talk about today. The second disclaimer is a lot of the content that I'm going to talk about outside of the Bible, but connected to the scripture comes out of a fantastic book that I read um, last year and that some of us um, here on staff have read together. It's called Managing Leadership Anxiety. It's by a guy named Steve Cuss, who's actually a, uh, a pastor over in Broomfield. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, short, little helpful introduction into just how we go about managing anxiety. And the leadership part, he writes it specifically for leaders, but Steve would say, Uh, You're a leader when people look to you to know what to do. That's what leadership is. So if you're a mom or you're a dad and your kids are looking to you and you're not sure what to do, that's when anxiety is produced. If you're a business owner or or if you're a teacher, whatever you do, there's probably situations where people look at you expecting you to know what to do. And if you don't, your first response may actually be an anxious response. So that's a great resource just to follow up um, and really go deeper because I'm just going to scratch the surface today. But I want to jump in right now um, to the verses into the Bible and what the Bible has to say about this topic of anxiety. To do that, I want to take a look at some verses that come out of a New Testament book called the book of Philippians. Now, Philippians is a wonderful little book. It's actually a letter. It was a letter that was written by a guy named Paul. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, Paul was one of the um, early leaders in the early church. Um, He helped to establish a lot of the the communities of Jesus followers that that existed around the Mediterranean in the first century. So somewhere around 50 AD, Paul traveled to a city called Philippi, which was a Roman colony in the eastern part of Greece, uh, modern-day Greece. And it was a Roman colony, and and Paul traveled there. And as he often did, he he taught people about who Jesus was, uh, about what it meant to have um, freedom and life in Jesus and to follow him, what it meant to follow the way of Jesus. And people accepted and believed that. And he established what was the first church in that city. And it was actually the first church in Eastern Europe. And so that, that was around 50 AD. You can read all about that in the, the biblical book of Acts. The book of Acts chapter 16 talks about Paul's travels and his journeys. But this book was written about 10 years after that, after Paul established the church in Philippi. He writes, and and he did this pretty regularly. He would travel, establish these churches, set up leadership, and then later on he he would hear news of how things were going, problems they were having, successes they were having, and he would write back to give them encouragement and to give them instruction and guidance. So that's what the book of Philippians is. And he's writing to them to give them encouragement, but also the, to challenge them to continue to hold on to their faith and to continue to live it out. Because Philippi, again, it was a Roman colony, a part of the, the Roman Empire, and it was known as a very nationalistic place that was very loyal to Rome. And as a result, this created tension between 
the followers of Jesus and, and people who were very loyal to Rome because Rome had at its heart this tenet that there is no Lord but Caesar. Caesar is Lord. The king was considered almost like a demigod. Like he was looked to as a godlike figure and almost worshipped. So in a very nationalistic city like this, to have a group of people that say, no, Caesar isn't actually Lord. There's this guy, Jesus, who was crucified by Caesar, but, but who came back to life. He is Lord. He is king. He's God. That begins to bump against the cultural values and the political values in that place. And so the Christians in Philippi were experiencing some persecution. And so Paul writes to them to encourage them, but also to challenge them. And near the end of the letter, he specifically addresses the anxiety that was rising up because of the cultural situation that they were experiencing. And so in chapter 4, we pick it up in verse 6, where Paul writes to them and says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So here Paul is actually, this is not a new idea from Paul. Paul is echoing the teachings of Jesus as it relates um, to anxiety. Jesus also taught that his followers should resist anxiety. In one of his more famous teachings, it's it's recorded in a couple of the books that that are the accounts of Jesus' life, we're told that Jesus said, he was teaching, and he says, why do you worry? You know, by worrying, what are you accomplishing? Why do you worry about what you eat or or what you drink or what you wear? You know, people who don't believe in God worry about those things and chase after those things. If you believe in God, believe that he sees you and he knows what you need and he cares for you. Trust in God. Don't worry about chasing after those things because in the end, what good is it going to do you? By worrying, what are you accomplishing? That was kind of Jesus' perspective, that as a follower One of his followers, he called us, he called his followers to push against, to resist that feeling of anxiety that was pervading his culture. It pervades our culture even to this day. So Paul's picking up on this and he says the same thing. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Instead, Paul says, in every situation, he says, I want you to practice prayer. Practice prayer. He's calling us to to take their worry and their anxiety and to take it to God. And by prayer and petition, which means by asking, petitioning, asking God for the things that we feel like we need. And at the same time, practicing gratitude, giving thanks, thanking God for the the good things that we already have in our life. We remind ourselves that God is the one who's in control. We remind ourselves that we're in a trust relationship with God. And that if things are not going the way that we expect, we can take that worry and anxiety to him. Now, here's the thing. I think these verses, I think this idea is true. I think Jesus' call to resist anxiety is important. I think Paul's call to resist anxiety and to engage in prayer is important. The problem is there's a, the way that these verses have often been delivered, um, both to me and maybe to you in your life, sometimes isn't all that helpful. It makes me think about the, the old Bob Newhart sketch. Now, if you're under 40, you don't know who Bob Newhart is, but Bob Newhart was a sketch comedian. And he had this, this hilarious bit where he played a, a, psych, a psychologist or a counselor, and a, a woman came in to see him and said, Doctor, you know, I've heard you're amazing, and I heard you're, you, you have this amazing brief therapy practice, and I, I just want to, 
I, I, I can't find any help from anywhere else. And he says, okay, yeah, great, absolutely. Um, you know, my sessions last five minutes. Um, I guarantee you we probably won't use the whole five minutes, but tell me what's going on. She said, well, I, I am deathly afraid that I'm going to be buried alive. Deathly afraid I'm going to be buried alive. And he said, well, has anybody ever tried to bury you alive? Has that ever been an experience of yours? She said, no, 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 I just, but I think about it all the time. I worry about being buried alive. You know, if I get in an elevator, I'm nervous. If I get in a car, I'm nervous. I mean, if, I get in a, if, I, if I'm in a house, anything boxy, it makes me feel like I'm going to be put in a box and then they're going to bury me alive. And he said, okay, I, I think I understand. He goes, well, I have two words for you, two words, and, and that's all you need to know. So when you feel anxious in this way, stop it, stop it, just stop it. And he says this to her over and over again. He goes, okay, so we've, that's about three minutes, so do you have anything else? And she keeps telling these other things that she's anxious about, and he just keeps saying, stop it. Just stop it. Just stop being anxious. Now, what's funny about that, and why that's a funny bit, is because we all have these things that we're nervous or that we're anxious about, and we would love to just be able to stop it. We would love to be able to just not worry. But it doesn't really work that way. And unfortunately, I think... Well-meaning Christians, well-meaning pastors often hand out this verse in the same way Bob Newhart hands out therapy. We give this verse which says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in all things, by prayer and petition and thanksgiving, submit your requests to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all, all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Amen. Praise the Lord. Go and be well. And it feels kind of cheap and hollow, like an easy answer to a difficult question. Now, the problem is, I think the problem is not with these verses. I think it's a problem of expectations. It's a problem of the way we interpret these verses and what we expect from what Paul is saying here. So what Paul is, is not saying here is that prayer is an easy fix to take away all of your anxiety and never experience it again. It actually never says that your anxiety will be completely taken away if you just pray. He doesn't say that. What he says is that in all situations, all situations, before you have anxiety, when you have anxiety, after you have anxiety, in all situations, we should cultivate a practice of prayer, asking God for what we need and expressing thanks for the things that he's already given us, acknowledging who God is and that we're in a trust relationship with him. And as we do that, Paul suggests that cultivating this practice of prayer actually guards our heart. It guards our heart against anxiety. It's a preventative sort of measure that prevents anxiety from taking control and managing our lives and running rampant. It's a way of reassuring ourselves that God is in control, that he's with us, that he is for us, and somehow, some way, eventually, Things are going to be okay. That in the end, all will be well. And if it's not well, it's not the end. Paul says this is the practice of prayer. This is a proactive practice that we do all times and in all situations. And then he suggests another practice that, that's often missed. It's rarely handed out. At the same time, when people come with anxiety and we give them these verses, like these easy fixes, this one never goes along with it. But it's an important compliment. It's a complimentary idea to Paul's call to practice prayer. Look what he says in verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, 
whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So remember our definition of chronic anxiety is it is a perceived threat. It is a perceived danger. It's something that we think is there, but it it really isn't. It's not a real threat. And so Paul is saying here, think about the things that are true. Don't think about the things that are not true. Chronic anxiety is carrying around a weight, a weight like what other people think about you, what other people's expectations are of you and how you live up to those. It's carrying around the weight of what if situations. What if this happens and if this happens and then if that happens and then if that, it's following the worst case scenario into every situation of your life. It's a weight of carrying things that are outside of your control and outside of your knowledge. It's carrying the weight of doubt Doubt in yourself, maybe a lack of trust or doubt about others, maybe even a lack of trust and a a certain amount of doubt in your faith about whether God is actually with you. All of these things can bring on chronic anxiety. And Paul reminds us that a lot of our anxiety is actually based on dwelling on these things, letting our mind dwell on the things that aren't true, or the things that are outside of our control, the worst case scenarios that allow our mind to spin off into anxiety that just owns us and takes us to a deep, dark place. I think anxiety, chronic anxiety, is a dark spiritual force that can have very negative implications for our lives, for the organizations that we work for, for our families. And the more that you dwell on these things, these things that are outside of your control, these things that you think you need, Things like approval, things like acceptance. The more we dwell on these things and worry about whether or not we have them or not, the more the anxiety grows. It's a case of what you feed lives and grows, and what you starve withers and dies. So what are you feeding, and what are you starving? Paul says, don't feed your anxiety, starve it. Paul reminds us that So much of our anxiety is based on dwelling on these things and that Jesus died to free us from that. We don't have to worry about these things because we have a hope that ultimately things are going to be well. Now, that doesn't mean that everything's going to work out perfect every time. This is not a Pollyanna sort of faith that says if you just trust and if you just believe, then the situation is going to get better. No, in the end, eventually, at some point, all things will be well. And if it's not well, it's not the end. It's a call to persevere. And it's a call to dwell on what you know is true, what you know is right, that God loves you, he created you, he ultimately wants good for you. It's a reminder that as we feed those things, they grow in our life. And we begin to experience a kind of peace that is beyond human understanding. And that is real, and many of us could stand and talk about ways we've experienced that in our life today. But as we close, I want to talk about a few practical ways that we can take these principles, these ideas that Paul has given us, and then how can we build our lives on that? How can we begin to practice and live in a way that helps us to have freedom from the anxiety that is constantly being pumped into our culture and that we're absorbing from our culture? Because there's a feedback loop we both give to and we receive from. And that only changes if something in us shifts. We can't wait for the anxiety in our culture to go away. Who knows when that is going to happen? So I want to talk about some really practical things. And and to start, I just want to suggest that as followers of Jesus, we are called to resist anxiety and to embrace 
trust in God. The first step in resisting anxiety is to understand it. To know what does anxiety look like for you? Because we all get anxious. We all have things. It it is 100%. One in one human beings experience anxiety, chronic anxiety. We all have things that we worry about that are out of our control, things we think we need that we don't need. But what does it look like for you? And when you experience anxiety, where does that come from? What does it feel like in your body? Anxiety first manifests itself physically in our body in some way either in a spinning head. Have you ever laying in bed at night and you can't go to sleep because you're thinking about something? Something's just stuck in your head. You're, you're, you're having imaginary conversations with somebody that you're disagreeing with. It's anxiety. Have you thought about what's underneath that? What's the need that's being filled? What is it that's preoccupying so much? What is it that you're feeding there? Maybe for you, it's a racing heart. Your heart starts to beat fast. You can feel your face go flush. What happened? What's going on when you feel that happening, when you feel that anxiety rising? What's going on around you? What are the external factors that might be contributing to that? Maybe for you, it's in your gut. A lot of us get the butterflies, stomach drops out, and we feel like we want to throw up, that nervous anxiety that lands in our stomach. What's going on when that happens? We need to start to become students to understand what is it that our particular form of anxiety looks like and where does it come from? Know the internal sources for your particular kind of anxiety. Again, is it, is it about being liked? Is it a need to please other people? That's a big part of mine. I like people to like me. And if they don't, I get anxious. If I get in a disagreement with somebody, I am, I am wrecked. Like that's a part of my personality that I've had to overcome. And guess what? It doesn't go away. Just knowing about it doesn't change it or make it go away. But it means that I have a hold of it. It doesn't have a hold of me anymore. So what are yours? What are your internal Needs. What are your internal anxieties? Is it a need to please or like? Is it a need to have control? How about this one? I think this one's kicking a lot of people's butt these days. Do you have a need to have answers in every situation? Because if so, you're going to feel anxious in the middle of a global pandemic that nobody understands. <laughs> because nobody has answers for where this is going. And yet, a lot of us are in situations where we're asked questions like, what do you think the next six months is going to look like? I I have jokingly started just responding, I don't know, my crystal ball is broken. I have no idea what's going to happen. Because that's a way of managing my own anxiety. Because I want to have answers. And I usually don't. What about environments or situations? You know, are there there places where you feel more anxious? Maybe people that you encounter that cause anxiety to rise in you? What are those? As we begin to begin to get curious about what our anxiety is and how it manifests itself, we can begin to understand where it comes from, what it's connected to, and then we can begin to leverage cultivating this practice of prayer. And as we do, as we learn, we can begin to submit those things to God and receive the kind of peace that that Paul is talking about as we give him thanks for the ways that he's given us freedom from needing these things we think we need or from being controlled by these desires or these thoughts that, that cause anxiety within us, these situations that cause anxiety to, run, to well up in us. And then we can begin also cultivating practices that help us to resist or push away anxiety. Maybe for you, if, if watching the news at night or flipping through social media, if you begin to realize that, that your anxiety is rising, maybe you do need to stop it. Maybe, maybe that is a stop it thing for you. Maybe you just need to put the phone down or turn the TV off. Recognize the sources of anxiety and begin to dwell on things that are good and that are true. 
that are encouraging. There's still a lot of good that's happening in this world. The coronavirus doesn't get the last word. Racial injustice doesn't get the last word. Political division doesn't get the last word. There's still hope. There's still goodness. There's still things that we have to celebrate. But what are you feeding? Are you feeding the anxiety? Are you feeding the negativity? Are you feeding what's good and what's true and what's beautiful? Now, to be clear, I am not saying if you do these things, you will never experience anxiety. Anxiety will always be, chronic anxiety will always be at some level a part of our life. Always something that we have to manage. I mean, one of the theories about about why Americans experience this more than others is because we're so fortunate to not have to worry about like eating and clothing and living indoors. We have time to worry about all these other things. So it's going to be a part of our life. And there's, there's even good in that. God, thank you that I don't have to worry about where my next meal is going to come from. I can worry about what people think about me. And I can surrender that to him. So anxiety is never going to go away. But again, as you begin to understand it, As you begin to cultivate an attitude of prayer and a practice of prayer that really turns these things over and gives God gratitude, and as you begin to let your mind practice dwelling on the things that are good, true, and beautiful and not the things that are negative, you will begin to experience peace and freedom. Anxiety doesn't have to own or control your life. You can own and control it. It will never go away. We will always struggle against it, but we can resist. So let's pray as we close that God would give each of us clarity to understand how we experience anxiety and give us courage to face that as we go out of this place today and into our weeks. Heavenly Father, thank you that um, you have given us freedom, that ultimately um, in you, you've given us life, um, you've given a second life in Jesus, and that um, because of his death on the cross, um, we are free um, not to have to experience worry, uh, about life or um, any of the things in this life that, that even death um, has holds no um, anxiety for those of us who, um, who trust and believe that our future is secure with you. And so God, um, help us to live that more and more, to live into that freedom. We confess that too often um, we are distracted by other things. We are distracted by the bad news that we see on the news and, and the really terrible situations that that are happening in our world. It's, it's not just sticking our head in, our, in the sand and ignoring them, but Lord, it's letting our minds continue to return to the truth that um, ultimately you're in control. You see us, you know us, you love us, and that you're with us um, in every situation. God, may we um, have the courage um, to face our fears and our anxieties and to continue to cultivate practices of prayer and, and of thanksgiving and of uh, dwelling on what's good and true and beautiful, that we might experience the freedom the peace and the joy that's available only in you. We pray these things through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.